What's up, everybody? Um, hate to do that kind of, well, I guess you could call it average YouTube. Hey, what's up, everybody? Make sure to like, <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. We're going to curse in the first five minutes. Fuck shit. I'm here with my friend, Ryan. Um, who are you and what do you do? Uh, yeah, my name is Ryan Rutan. I am, by day, I run a team of ethical hackers uh, for Synac. Uh, for anyone who's interested in that, we can talk to that. But um, pretty much in my spare time, I pretty much just like to do a lot of things. I do a lot of hardware and software tinkering. But uh, the last couple of years, I've really gotten into writing. And I just got done writing my first fiction novel. So uh, yeah, so that's perfect. Fun. We're going to get into the writing. But first, I got to ask about ethical hacking, because obviously, cybersecurity is a big big topic of the news discussion, just everyday life now. How'd you get into that? Uh, for me, I mean, at the end of the day, it becomes a, I guess, a, whoops, sorry about that. We, uh, All good, that. brother. These things uh, I would say, uh, for me, I, I got into it as an, at an early age, I guess, computers in general. Um, when you, uh, starting out, when I was growing up in like the late 80s, early 90s, and computers were really becoming a big thing, there really wasn't a lot of, you know, books to read or you know a lot of experts so it's kind of everyone's kind of self-made so it became you know a habit of just kind of tinkering poking holes and things you know taking vcrs apart and seeing what all does what um you know that kind of curiosity kind of transcended to the computer realm and then um you know going into high school and to college it was just like oh you know security was always an afterthought back then it was never oh computers are so complicated no one's going to figure this out we're okay you know security through obscurity was the old uh, was the old antage, but now it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much, you know, in your face every day. So um, I took an IT route or a kind of like a technology route uh, with my, with my knowledge, I decided to, you know, pivot away from the hacker tinkerer element um, and kind of go full corporate, you know, less, less comp sci, more uh, business. Uh, and I've been doing that for quite a long, long time. And then probably about two years ago, about two years ago, I started getting wind of, you know, this, ethical hacking, you know, bug bounty kind of movement that's been, that had been going on. Um, and uh, Sinek reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to come and, and kind of help run their team, do what I do, which is run online communities. And, you know, so I did, and I've been here for about a year and a half and having a blast, so. Amazing. Now, what, how would you define ethical ha hacking? What kind of stuff do you do? I would say, I mean, so the, the easiest way and the most succinct way of, of a colleague of mine mentioned it was uh, think bad, do good. You know, it's like the, the whole mantra of an ethical hacker is to, to do all the things that a bad, a bad hacker would do. Um, you can use the concept of white hat or black hat. Um, a black hat is the, are the people who, you know, do malicious things with, mal with malintent and, you know, you know, ransomware, all that fun stuff, uh, steal credit cards, things like that. The idea of the white hat, which is the ethical hacker, is to do all those things that they do, but instead of using and exploiting that information for profit, is using that information and working with companies to shore up their security, uh, you know, vulnerabilities to make sure that they're better suited to, to handle, um, you know, attacks from the black hats. So it's really, you know, that's what they do. So from a, what do they do on a daily basis? It's pretty much, you know, companies will come to companies like Synac. They will say, hey, we want your team of hackers to come and try to break our site. You know, we want you to try to get in and get our crown jewels information from our customers, uh, you know, credit card numbers, you name it, anything you've seen in the news, that's what companies are interested in knowing whether or not they're vulnerable, susceptible for. Uh, if the white hats are able to do it, they, sh they share their information on how they did it. They get rewarded uh, by the companies for sharing that information. Um, companies then try to fix it and the white hats then try to break it again. And it's just a, 
a vicious cycle. Every time new software is released, there's always new vulnerabilities, new opportunities, new attack surfaces released. So, um, you know, there's, it's like an endless cycle. Customers or uh, companies releasing more and more software and you know, more white hats have to go and test it before the black hats get in. Yeah, and it sounds, I mean, not just sounds, it is such an important job to have. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you can be recruited by companies. Sometimes they recruit the black hats because they're so good at what they do. They recruit them to be like a white hat for their, for their, for their company. I, w I would say that again, like, again, I'm not saying that that never happens. I would say that for the most part, like if you're a true, true black hat, um, you know, you will, you know, you have your ideas of what you do. Um, like there's the concept of a gray hat, I would say that sits in between. Um, I would say that back in the eighties and nineties, I would say that was kind of the thing. I would say in the industry today, there's a large pool of people that are growing up with the mindset of going into the white hat side of the business. Um, but you're right, there is a massive uh, need and demand for um, security professionals. Um, companies are asking for them all the time. Uh, so again, if it's an industry that, that floats your boat, it's definitely a, a lucrative one. Um, and it's always going to be in high demand. So, so yeah, I know this was a, a job, you know, job you got hired to do, but um, so for example, for example, a couple of years ago, when ISIS was a much bigger uh, deal in the news and the media than it is now, uh, I'm not a hacker by any means, but I did do some crowdsourcing for anonymous with different websites to see if websites were ISIS related or not. Um, you know, have you done any vigilante work before you got hired? Um, have you, have you done anything? where you're like, oh, well, this is, this is fucked up. Let me try to uh, like attack this site or anything. No, I would say, like I said, from my perspective, you know, my, my, my experience lies purely in the knowledge of how to do things. Uh, like I said, when I, I kind of made a pivot shift around the late nineties where I kind of stopped any of those, you know, I would consider like things that I would consider, you know, getting yourself into trouble. Uh, I kind of took that knowledge. I said, look, instead of doing that, I'm going to turn it from a bit to a business side. Um, so for my, myself per se, like I would say I'm technically versed in almost all the technologies on how to do it. When I read up on these vulnerabilities, I'm like, oh, wow, that's, you know, it's like one of those things when you see a work of art, you're like, wow, that is amazing. And understanding it, you know, bit for bit, bite for bite, how it works. It's like, sometimes it's just like, how did these people come up with it? Um, you know, because what's really interesting about this uh, concept is that from the outside in, you know, it's really a, a blank slate. You're looking at, you know, little fingerprints of websites, fingerprints of systems, and saying, hmm, I wonder what this is like. Let me try and let me poke at it. Let me send a bunch of traffic this way. And looking at how it responds and looking for places where you can get a foothold and wedge in there. So uh, it definitely takes skill. Uh, you know, like I said, I would definitely not categorize myself by any means as, as a black hat or a white hat or something like that. I would definitely consider myself a, an extreme technologist, someone who understands a lot of the technologies that are being used. Uh, and I enjoy talking with them. The conversing with them are is quite entertaining. Uh, in fact, it's, I would consider many of them my, uh, my surrogate family in some cases. So. <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, you're, as your website says, you're a technology evangelist extraordinaire. Um, mm. Part of being an evangelist is, you know, preaching and talking and all that stuff. And you're the director of the Sinac Red Team community. I'm, I'm just reading off the website. Um, That's okay. Yeah. And just for, um, just so you have your street cred, it's Sinac. So, you know, so. Sinac, my bad brother. And right. uh, thank you for correcting me. And yeah, so, you know, we kind of, for years, we had this very primitive idea of like a superhero in the streets dressed up in like a Batman costume. And then the, someone dressed up like the Joker who's trying to take over the town. That's essentially, and there's also like private security, you know, uh, like, they're, like, like there's private security forces. 
and I guess people for a long time before the internet maybe thought that's how things would eventually be or something, but these, these things exist. They just exist in their virtual realm. We've kind of created this other universe where, you know, like superheroes and supervillains and um, people in disguises, but the disguises are much more, it's so much more complicated than just a mask. It's like you're behind so many privacy walls and VPNs. I'm sorry. I don't know like all the technology, uh, all the terms uh, very well. But, you know, these things are happening behind closed doors and, you know, Europe, you, you know, Europe, you, like a private security force uh, member, essentially. So what, what kind of interesting things are happening in the hacking community right now? What are companies looking to protect themselves from and people and what kind of things are, I guess you could say, the supervillains in the hacking community looking to get out of innocent people? I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's there's two main things. It's all about information. So, uh, you know, if I can get personal, the PII, personal identifying information is like the crown jewel. If I can get your social security number, if I can start, you know, the thing to keep in mind is like when you read things like uh, these services that say, you know, has your password been compromised? Uh, your social security was found on the dark web. Like that, you know, usually what it means is at some point in time, you traded your information with some site, um, like with your credit card information, your, you know, maybe it's your social, whatever. And, if that site gets compromised, that information gets dumped. Again, that, that information, it could take as little as five minutes for that to happen, like for an entire database to get dumped with the right, with the right information and boom, that person turns around and starts selling that, you know, incremental payloads on the dark web. Or again, most of the time they don't do it right away. They try to distance themselves from the, the time in which they get their information to the time in which they, they actually uh, weaponize it, if you will. Uh, but I mean, that's, that is it. I mean, at the end of the day, it is about information. If you can get trade secrets, uh, if you can get, uh, you know, patent information, trademark uh, details that are before things, you know, news before it comes live, you know, all that stuff is, is, is great because again, it can all be used to create an arbitrage opportunity, whether it's, you know, trading information for money or, you know, doing other things. So I think at the end of the day, it just, it comes down to that raw information uh, and, and how they get at it. I mean, like I said, there's a million ways under the sun. It's probably the biggest you know, what's really kind of scary about this is, I mean, the analogy that I used was uh, I was a software uh, solutions architect, uh, integrate systems integrator for probably about 15, uh, 15 years or so. And uh, going into about 2000, I guess, 2011, um, I shifted into almost a pure business role where I was doing more, uh, less like actual raw engineering, but more, you know, evangelizing of, of information and solutions. And at that time in 2011, I had, you know, I, I was aware of security. I was aware of all the different things that were happening. And what's really interesting is that when I came back to this realm, like in 2019, I was like, okay, this is, you know, I, I kind of had the notion, what do I have to do to get ramped up again? Like, what did I miss in the eight years? I was kind of not focused on this. Uh, and the easiest thing to look at is the OWASP top 10 is like the kind of, if you had to choose one thing, um, it would be that the top 10 piece, which again, it's just saying these are the type of threats and vulnerabilities that are plaguing the internet. The most things that if, if you're a company and you're trying to ensure that you're not, uh, you do your best to cover the bare minimum, the OWASP top 10 is definitely where you start. And when I looked at the OWASP top 10, the difference between 2011 and like 2019 was like one or two things. I mean, and, and what's really scary about that is that if you look at the pace in which innovation is happening, like uh, technologies being rolled out, companies getting online, services going digital, new startups that are coming out. Like all of these places are built around consumer products where information is being shared, personal data is being stored, and all these services are coming live. And the tooling to exploit these OWASP top 10 things 
has gone on a trajectory of like 100x. I mean, it's exponential. Like there are people that, you know, what used to be, you know, in 2011, what used to require a lot of skill and nuance and, and general thing is now a point and a click, you know, to get into a system to make a you know, malicious payload or, or whatnot. And so it's really interesting to be like, the, bad, the tools on the bad side have gone really, really fast. And the safeguards on the other side have really haven't kept up. And so it's kind of like, the, the, it's, make, it's getting easier to get in. And yet, there's not really a lot of new stuff. Like it'd be ideal if, hey, you know, eight years ago, the top 10 completely changes as in like, the, the, internet, the, the system has figured out how to solve those top 10 things and a new top 10 has emerged. But it's really these eight are so prevalent in old software and new software, people running outdated software, people running homegrown custom software without knowing about security. And again, like it's, it's so much is coming out there. Like it's, it's a very, it's a very surreal kind of uh, aspect because it's, I don't know, it almost makes you not want to ever like give your credit card to any service ever, but you know. So. Yeah, and it's, uh, and there's good reason for people to not want to do that. I'm sure as you know, we hear a lot about protecting your identity or protecting your your data what are companies and individual hackers and i like i like that you mentioned that they kind of uh distance themselves a little bit mm -hmm. after they kind of get like maybe your credit card information or something what do they do with this information what do they do with your social security what are people doing with data uh, why should people protect their 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 digital assets i mean it's it's pretty straightforward anything that you can do with your data is can be done by them. I mean, it all depends on the weakest link. I mean, if you think about, oh, my social security number, uh, it's only used for the IRS, or it's only used for the, well, really it's used for credit cards, it's used in so many different ways. Um, you start talking about identity theft, like being able to apply for a loan, really a loan can be done by anybody. It, it just has to have, you know, so imagine a service that doesn't quite protect and do proper validation of things. Uh, if they have the right information, you can, you know, someone could take your data and apply for loans on your behalf and ruin your credit. and Again, like you have to undo all that, un undo all that mess. I mean, you, you can, what's really scary is the fact that, you know, this information, like it really, people really boil down to, you know, your credit card, your social security number, the things that are supposed to be as private to you of, of, of the data as possible. Um, and yet that stuff is, like I said, when you have a site that takes that information in, if they don't, if you don't put the right safeguards in on those sites, you become the weakest link. Like, you know, it becomes around town. Like, hey, you know what? I found this site. They don't validate this. They don't check this. They don't send an email. They don't do X, Y, Z. And you can, if you get this information, you can, you know, attack it and you can submit a bunch of, you know, normal, uh, normal looking things that ruin a person's life. And again, the hackers can benefit from it. You know, again, like all they need is uh, to get that money to cash into their account and they're good. So it's, it is, again, it's really, really, you know, easy to do things wrong. And again, it, it's the responsible companies that are out there that are at the forefront in this bug bounty movement that are saying, look, you know what, to, you know, everyone together is the way we're gonna solve this, the way that we're gonna be, if anything, a half a step ahead of, of the opposition. Um, you know, it's about trying to get ahead there and, and use as many people as possible to realize who is the weakest link, identify it, share the information, make it easier for them to adopt fixes and get the information out, not just you know, reactive fixes, but proactive training to engineers. You know, if you look at, you know, the demand of the amount of software that needs to be written in the next five years to support the technology growth that's predicted, you know, in the next 10, you know, that's a lot of engineers running a lot of code, not all of them trained the same way. Um, so whether you train everybody, have better checks and balances in the SDLC, you know, it's, it's, it's incumbent upon all aspects of it to try to 
to nip this in the bud. But again, it's a very, you know, difficult problem to solve. Oh yeah, it's such a, I mean, I mean, the amount of new things that humans have had to incorporate into their lives and figure out in the past 20 years is insane. And to try to figure it all out within 20 years is so hard. And I think what you said is so important that there needs to be some sort of conglomeration of, of people who are trying to defend against this, these types of cyber attacks. Uh, what type of things can an individual do to protect themselves and make sure they're not giving away data to the wrong sites or, or making sure that there's some safeguards in the websites that they use? I mean, there's, I mean, I would say there's a couple of, I mean, the, the top three things, I think it's really funny. It's if you were to get everybody in the world to, uh, to do like, you know, three or four simple things, I mean, you, you would see a drastic change in the tactics that are having, that, that, that are used today. So, I mean, um, the easiest one is passwords. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, invest in a password manager. Um, there's plenty of open source ones, uh, you know, but again, find one that works for you and how you work. Uh, but again, using different passwords, um, using different emails is something I also do. Uh, again, I don't use, reuse an email for any service, any one service. Um, again, just trying to make it a little bit more difficult um, for people to guess and, and enumerate things. And so that's the first and foremost thing that you can do. Reusing passwords is again, you're trusting that the weakest link that we, of where you use that password is going to be good enough to thwart it. But again, when it comes around that that place is the weakest link, your name shows up in these, you know, these database dumps. And so um, that's the easiest thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you know, be careful with, you know, ask, be conscious of giving too much information to, to sites. Um, that one right there is probably where it's probably the easiest one is like, if you're buying a, if, if you're buying like a, you know, like a bag of gummy bears or whatever, like, you know, they don't need your social, you know, they don't need, uh, you know, some pre-authorized uh, credit card thing. You can find a way to use, uh, say, uh, use intermediate wallets, uh, you know, stored credit card information, uh, you know, try not to save all the data and they're re-entering it all the time as it works as well. Or again, if you get a password manager that works, they can pre-fill and automate and securely store that information for you so you can do it on demand. So it's never really out of your grasp. Um, those type of things work well. Um, and to be honest, uh, the easiest one is don't click on things you don't know. Um, you know, I, I talked about this in a, in a webcast I did a, a couple of months ago, but, you know, right now with all the, the COVID, uh, COVID craziness and all the uncertainty, you know, everyone is understaffed. This is the prime breeding ground for, for hackers to make their mark. You know, like um, all they have to do is, you know, people are sharing on social media that they're depressed or that they're sad or that they, you know, they're, they're hurting for jobs, or whatever. They're leaving social indicators out there that show how susceptible they are to certain type of messaging. And all it takes is the right message to say, hey, you know what, you know, unemployment check is, is balanced, click here to do whatever, you know, you should, before it sounds too good to be true, you should double check it. Um, again, never really click on anything that comes over text message. Uh, if something that says, like, if it says in name that it comes from uh, a certain company, you know, try take the extra time and go and type in the URL and, and go and see if you find a corresponding message, reach out to that customer service, um, you know, report it if you can, uh, especially in spam or uh, report the message if you can, if there's an opportunity in the, depending on what software you're using. Just be, you know, be on, be on alert. I mean, if it sounds too good to be true, if it's from uh, someone that you don't know, um, you know, that's, it's really crazy. Now, for example, you know, you, you talk about this, uh, the reason why it's so important is that it only takes one click. You click on one click and, uh, you know, hackers can get a hold of your uh, session cookies, potentially if there's an exploit that's on a website. The next thing you know, 
they can grab and, and do things as you, and again, grab your, your author, authorization tokens and start doing business as you. And the first thing they do is rather than go straight for your wallet or straight for your thing, they usually will go straight for your contact list and they will start using you as a Trojan horse to send that message to your friends so that you're now a trusted conduit and it's nefarious and it's bad. Um, and again, like you see it, if you, you know, whether it's, you know, Facebook messenger, WhatsApp or whatever, you know, like you'll see, uh, you know, some random person you haven't talked to in forever that you're, you know, they're sending you all these really great deals and you're like, why are you sending me this? And um, it just doesn't make sense. So again, that's just, uh, I, I always like to quote Harry Potter, constant vigilance is the, is the best thing you can have. So. Mm. Yeah. I'd always be weary. Um, there's a great story and it's not completely, it's not completely parallel to this, but it kind of reminds me of this because there is a sense of anonymity on the internet. So if someone's using your friend's account, um, you know, a lot of times you won't be aware like, Hey, I saw this crate. Like one that I always see is, is this you in this video? And then it'll be a link to something and it's, and it's obviously spam. Um, it's one of Aesop's fables called the man in the woods. Basically this man goes into the woods and he asks every single tree, like, Hey, can I have a branch? Uh, just for a project I'm working on and the trees are really nice. So they're like, sure, take a branch. And he comes back the next day with an ax he made out of the branches and he chops them all down. So you really got to be careful how much of yourself you give out, first of all, if we're going to use it in a modern context. And two, you know, you, ha you have to be careful, you know, who else you're giving your information to because that person you think you know might not be the person who actually sent you the message through them as a conduit. So we have to be really careful out there uh, one thing that I'm really concerned about is elderly people are often a are often subject to these attacks. Um, are there resources like what can we do to help older people who are just getting on the internet and just figuring it out? You know, to be honest, this is something that I struggle with as well. Um, you know, and again, like it's it's really obvious when like you know you have like a great grandmother or a grandmother sending you a message to play something. I mean, if they send you a message to play some crazy game, I mean, you can believe that. Uh, but in terms of sending you a message to go check out this website or whatever like that. It's like, you don't even surf the web. What are you, what are you doing sending me a link? So uh, to be honest, I mean, it's, it's really hard uh, because again, uh, a lot of the stuff does, does come down to, uh, you know, using, getting them to adopt things like the password, password, uh, you know, uh, password manager so that they can uh, not think about it. Cause they only care about is they'll use the same password because it's something they don't have to think about, but make it so that it's a point and click away, things like that. That's probably the easiest thing to do um from that perspective and again it's the hardest thing because it's yet another thing for them to learn um but beyond that like i said if you're in a if you're in the position to have the technical authority to you know to put a uh, you know elderly people into a a child mode or a protected mode or some kind of thing where you can have a certain level of authority or autonomy on their device uh, devices um and they're willing to give that up that's again i'm not recommending that for everybody but again if there's someone that you really care about and they're really concerned about you know there's there are ways that you can lock things down to a point where like you can approve that only messages coming from certain people come to them, that they only have, uh, you know, access to certain things. They have credit card limits. Um, you know, again, I, I think that there's an opportunity, um, you know, for this generation that's about to retire, uh, you know, and going into this, this new world of, of, of insanity and connectivity, uh, you know, to, to really find the solution that works for everyone. Uh, because right now it's just a hodgepodge. It's um, people, proud that they don't want, you know, not want to give up the same, same thing. They don't want to give up their driver's license or they don't want to stop driving a car that independence. Um, you know, there's this balance of recognizing that I'm in, I'm in over my head versus yeah, I'm good. So.
Yeah. Um, is there, is, is it important to have a VPN? Because my friend was telling me that if you're on like a public Wi-Fi, you can get hacked through your phone if you're, or your laptop if you're using that same Wi-Fi, and that's one of the reasons to have a VPN. It, I mean, again, there's, there's the biggest thing with the VPN is that it encrypts your traffic. So that's your, that's your biggest piece. So again, like if someone was sitting on the same Wi-Fi as you and picking up your broadcast address or picking up the broadcast address, they'd be able to sniff everything that's coming across. So again, yeah, if you're on like a coffee shop Wi-Fi, uh, being, you know, if there's are, are, uh, security elements put in place on your computer or even at the, the access point level, you know, there are people that could sniff the traffic and again, start picking things out. You know, I think back to back in, you know, the early, the, the late nineties, you know, sniffing traffic was before like HTTPS is commonplace now. I mean, I think in the last two to three years, it's become the de facto default protocol. HTTP is now like, if you try to load up a generic HTTP website, it'll say, warning, this is unsafe. Or do you know, this is not HTTPS or it'll put the little icon up to show that it's not secure. Right. But like, if you look back to 1997, like that was all it was. And HTTPS was, was difficult. It was very uh, cumbersome to implement and cumber or cumbersome to transmit. So when you're on the same network and seeing and able to you know, sniff the, you know, like I remember using network flight recorder back in the day uh, when I was in college and you turn it on for 20 minutes in the college network and you'd have everyone's hotmail password. You know, it's just that simple um, because all the passwords were sent over clear text. They weren't encrypted. And it was just like, okay, this is way too much information, too much, too much to, to know about people, you know, like that. So it's kind of shocking, but again, HTTPS does a lot to keeping your traffic in, uh, encrypted, but again, like not all traffic from your computer goes out over HTTPS. Um, so again, there's, you know, whether it's TCP, IP, UDP, I mean, there's your, your computer's constantly sending out stuff. Uh, and again, it comes down to the weakest link. Does your computer send something as you're are using a service that doesn't quite have the right security stuff, uh, stuff put together so that it's sending a blind access token that someone picked up could use and start impersonating you, right? Like that's the thing you care about, about connecting to, access points that you don't that you don't own or that you don't control um so again like i always recommend if you are on a public one to have if you have if you can afford or or uh, have the ability to do a vpn it's probably worthwhile um to have and again like it's one of those things where you'll always find a use for it uh you know like it's uh you know the the, the most common you know the worst kept secret is about you know being able to change your location so that you could watch certain streaming services, you know, things like that. Like, oh, I want to be in Europe so I can watch something in America or get around Netflix's policy. And they're always trying to, you know, thwart that. Um, and, but again, it's, that's, there's always a use for a VPN. There's all, there, you know, so it's, it's one of those things where I would say if you had to pick $100 a year to spend for your personal safety password manager and a VPN probably would make that list. Absolutely. And, and there's different levels to it too. Um, if you, there are resources too, if you can't afford, uh, like the higher levels of VPN, like Proton VPN offers mm -hmm. a free level. There's, um, there's one called free VPN. All you have to do is watch like 12 ads in the morning and it takes like five minutes. It's really not that bad. And mm -hmm. you have free access for 24 hours. So there are ways for you to protect yourself. And speaking of, uh, free ways to pr protect yourself, I also wanted to ask you about, you know, what do you think about these, uh, you know, safe browsers like Opera, DuckDuckGo, Brave Browser. Uh, maybe we could talk about Tor a little bit too, even that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be honest, like I, I, I take a different approach to those. So for me, like I'm a developer and engineer. Uh, so uh, when, I'm, when I'm working on my web, I, I predominantly use Chrome and Firefox. Uh, like the way I decide, Chrome is my daily browser and it's just because 
I've got a lot of extensions built into it. I've built some for it. I've actually got automation built in for it. So again, like changing from Chrome is hard for me. Um, so again, and I don't, the switching cost to go to something else is not good. I use Firefox is mainly my BERT proxy. So when I'm using, you know, scanning software, like that's, that's the way I isolate my cookies. I don't use it for anything else. And no one really uses Safari. So, I mean, that's just there for, you know, if you need a throwaway request. So, um, but again, like I don't really use something out of those three. I do use Tor every now and then uh, again, like, but again, for me, I don't really do a lot of stuff that, I, that doesn't really, you know, that requires that level of anonymity. So, um, so I would say no comment. Again, I could probably make something up, but again, right. I don't like being called on it. <laughs> so exactly. And it, yeah, I guess if you're, like you said, if you, if you do the things that you talked about already, if you're safe, if you're smart, you kind of really, unless for some reason you're trying to protect your data from companies that send you ads or whatever, you mm -hmm. pretty much probably don't really need to use one, one of those like, safe browsers or whatever there's if you're safe in all the other ways and you're smart about it there's really maybe not even a point right well i mean again it just depends i mean so there's only so much information so like it's the way to think about it right if you use google chrome and use google search you use that combo in google dns you've already you're you're done like at that point google knows you at that point like if you take out you know, if you use Google DNS, if you, you know, if you remove Google DNS, don't use Google, uh, you know, Google at all. And then, you know, use a, a safe browser, for example, like, yeah, you can obfuscate your footprint, you know, and make it so that it's very hard for them to understand you. Um, I think there's a, there's a video out right now, the social dilemma that I, had, I need to watch on Netflix. I yeah, I haven't watched to, it either. I haven't had a chance to watch it. But again, like, it's, I, I think there's an element there, which again, like, you know, I think it's always known for me, like, when I give my name and information to Amazon or Google and, and, and Apple, like for me, like as long as I'm getting the service out of it that I need, as long as it's convenient and it's adding value to me, it's worth the trade-off, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they know that I order, you know, a 12 pack of, you know, a 12 pack of potato chips, you know, okay, yeah. So, you know, weaponize the bejesus out of that, you know, give, you know, give it to <laughs> me. But, um, but, you know, so I understand that that's gonna, that's gonna happen. But it, when it comes down to it, as long as I'm getting the value, if I'm not getting the value, then I'll be pissed off if that's not the, if, um, you know, if they start, you know, gleaning that information. But again, like, you know, it's, I don't find it very surprising that, you know, I, I read, uh, I read some article about something. I do one Google search and next thing you know, all the ads on every website I go to are all related to that thing. Right. You know, it's almost like, okay, that's a foregone conclusion. Uh, you know, but I think at the end of the day, you know, as long as, uh, you're getting the value out of it, you know, that's what's important in terms of if you want to be the, you know, the, the log cabin in the woods off the grid person, you know, on the internet. Yeah, you can totally tore it up, VPN it up, you know, wipe your cookies, you know, burn your laptop every week and get a new one. I mean, you can do all those different stages. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, there's only certain levels that the normal person's going to go, go to. Uh, yeah. And it's, and it's that futility that I think a lot of the that create the, the footholds and those cracks in the, in the armor um, that, that the hackers use to get in. Like there's only, everyone's got their own threshold of what they're willing to do. You know, the people who are not willing to use a password manager, you know, they need to rely on physical security. <laughs> so it's like, cause they probably have under their mouse pad or sticky note on their monitor or their, you know, their passwords are written out for everyone to see, you know? So, uh, you know, there's certain aspects of everyone's will of everyone's, um, I guess, security posture is a good way to put it. Uh, a colleague of mine used that term and I kind of like the way it sounds, but everyone's got their own kind of their own kind of level that they operate at. Um, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, um, 
and I, and I know that there's a really good argument against it. And I, I, I agree, I agree with the, the people that say that, um, say that, you know, the government shouldn't have complete access whenever they want, but you know, I, there's a part of me that's like, I don't care if the government searches my house because really all that they're going to find is an oil diffuser and some books, you know, like if you have nothing, don't forget to, the paintings behind you. So. Did you say panties? Don't forget the paintings or the, the artwork behind you. So. Oh, I think you said panties because I don't have any of those right now. Oh, okay. No, paintings. So, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enunciation um, I mean, kills. Yeah. If they, if, they, if they want to take those, I'll be a little upset. But other than that, like, you know, if you don't really have that much to hide, like, you know, some people go very overboard with it. Some people go, what the hell was that guy's name? The Unabomber? Um, Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. Some people go Ted Kaczynski about it. And... Um, but, you know, I think there's also now, I think another thing too is like data and, you know, if, if you let too much of your data out there and it's probably not like a cybersecurity issue, but um, so I don't, I don't know if you want to touch on this, but I, I would be glad to hear your opinion on it. It's like, like other countries can use it to influence elections and things like that. So I think, I think maybe that's what a lot of people are scared of. And, um, you know, when, especially with the election coming up, people don't know what's being put out by bots, like what's, what's being, what's being put out that's just garbage to change their mind because of something that uh, the websites have picked out on. Kind of like you said, like if I say potato chips, I'm sure I'll get asked for potato chips now because mm -hmm. it's happened on this podcast before where I say something and it comes out. So, I mean, is, is there, is there a better way to protect against that? Or like, would you have to be like a crazy kind of in the woods person that, to protect against that stuff? Yeah. This is the question that keeps me up literally the last, well, for the last many years is around like how, uh, how can you solve this? And it really is a problem. And again, like I think a lot of this, like in the social dilemmas show that we, that we were talking about, I think they touch on this, um, which is about, it's, it's, it's about the micro, the micro gestures, the, the suggestions that they were able to put in, um, you know, the things that they were to fire a synapse between an ad that flickers and it catches a thought and it makes an association of content. And, um, and again, you can, you can persuade opinion. Um, you know, the, the only thing that I use, again, like I don't have this silver bullet, um, but for me, like uh, my biggest thing is I never really click on when I read uh, things, whether it's, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever like that. If I read something and I'm like, before I react or anything like that, I always try to go to the source, from, like not from the link, but like go look up some of the words and like, hey, does it find out like, you know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of times I found, for example, like, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you have someone that someone who's not really political or you don't really accredit with being like necessarily someone who can put two and two together to make four. And they're like, and they share something that's way above their pay grade in terms of intellectual brain pan. And you're like, and it makes sense. You're like, okay, this doesn't quite check out. You go look it up and it's like, okay, well, someone actually took the time to take something, find the facts and twist and move. And like, you know, in some cases, you know, I mean, most of this happened to me like last week, someone sent me something that was around um, social security, how it works and, you know, who's at fault for what and what. And I'm just like, well, it passes the sniff test. I mean, sure, why not? So, but I went and looked at it and it literally, I found this webpage on the IRS's website that literally debunks everything. And like either, I don't know what was the causation or, you know, uh, what happened first? Was it the, was it the, the message that caused the website page to get created or was it the website page that created the message but like every point was twisted and morphed and, and literally contrary to what was on the other source. So again, it's, you know, there's, it's amazing 
how quick misinformation can get going. So for me, it's, you know, the big, the biggest thing is, is before you get emotionally wrapped up into it and there's a lot to get emotionally wrapped up in, yeah, find, find, find a second source, find a third source, find a fourth source and do the level of investigation into the, into the, the information that matches your level of emotion. If it is a 10 on your emotion and it's, and it's just, infuriating you or or you know it's making you sad or whatever and you want to like validate it like that's the level of of research you should do and source validation check multiple sources um and again like you can check for across the different spectrums everyone's got their bias but check across the spectrum um but that's the only way that we're going to do that and unfortunately again like there's only some people don't have the time to do that some people don't have the desire to do that some people are unable to do that um for other for various reasons so it's you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, there's not a silver bullet. So uh, right. try well, not to uh, let the, uh, the biased information in and try to find the facts somewhere within the, in the middle. Absolutely. We need to be more, I, I think we all need to be a little more malleable in how we approach things. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a professional marketer. I, I know you do marketing as well. Um, and, you know, one thing you know is that a lot of marketing uh, especially when it's done through articles, it's to evoke an emotion, anger, sadness, things that'll get you to click before you click. Cause if, if someone's listening to this, it's cause they want to, because that's what I do here. I try to teach people things they want to learn. Um, I try to get people to teach things really not, not me doing it. Um, think about which emotion is being evoked and then, you know, ask yourself, are they trying to just make me mad? And at that point, maybe it should be a red flag immediately. Well, then if you mm -hmm. click, do what you said, search the sources. Um, an episode that's coming out a couple weeks before this this one uh, for listeners out there with Nick Hershon. He used to write for the Daily News. He was a professor of mine. We talk about fake news and how to, you know, how to figure out what's out there. And it's it's really scary right now because as as you know, Ryan and people are. But like you said before, I love I love that you used it like the, this terminology. Information is being weaponized in so many different ways, in so many ways that most people don't even know. And you know it firsthand. And I mean, like, how scary is this? Like, should we be worried for the future? Is it going to get worse and worse? I mean, I, 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 I don't like to be pessimistic. I also don't, uh, you know, I'm pretty pragmatic. I think that it's going to take a lot of social responsibility for at multiple levels. It's going to take social responsibility at the company level, the, you know, Silicon Valley, the, the technology giants, the people who enable us to stay this connected. Um, it's going to require them to have some ownership of the problem as the, as the, you know, the, the unfiltered untapped conduit, you know, are they publishers or are they platforms, you know, like, you know, they, they dance in the middle trying not to pick one, but again, like they need to, you know, I'm seeing more and more over the last, you know, couple of years, uh, people picking more of a side and, and trying to, and take that responsibility. But then it goes all the way down to the weakest link, which is the end user, um, the willingness to want to care, um, to click on it. And that's probably the biggest part. Apathy is, um, I think, has, has pretty much been very prevalent, um, I'd say, over the last decade. Uh, it has, has really kind of taken a foothold in a large part of, of disaffected people, whether it's, uh, or disenfranchised people, whether it's, you know, rural America, uh, you know, uh, minority groups or you know, like, or just people who of uh, different identities, you know, whether it's gender or sexuality or whatever, like feeling as if they've been marginalized by, by this corporate machine and whatever. And so, you know, this, the concept of, you know, it's going to take a top down, bottom up overhaul 
to change the to change it because right now it's like the Pavlovian response, right? We've been feeding quarters into this machine and the, they're just getting the money. I mean, they, they see the money, the money hand over fist is coming in. And until we can break that, that, that positive response or that positive uh, reinforcement, they're not going to change. I mean, they're, they're companies. That's what they do. They're, they're becoming, they're beholden to their shareholders and that's what they do. And, and we as consumers want the things that are fastest, cheapest, easiest, make my life better. Um, you know, and so we need to, you know, some, at some point give up on some of those things like, uh, and again, it's really hard to ask someone, I'm not going to be the one, you know, uh, I shake my hand in the air at Amazon, you know, how dare you have so many things that are so cool that I want at such the right price, you know, uh, but, um, you know, but I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, we need to all figure out a way that's how can, how can we get that level of scale and innovation and in value to everybody. I think that's probably the biggest thing I'm concerned about is if we can get the value that every, that the people see distributed to everyone in the world. Like, you know, I look at things like last mile internet. I look at things like, you know, electricity, clean water, human necessities, and things that are needed to up level all of humanity. Those are the things that I would love to see these technologies be weaponized. And if you can use that money to do that, then to me, that's the trade-off. It's like, look, yeah, I do see potato chip ads every Thursday. Okay. But because this company is doing great and they're giving back and doing great work for humanity, I know that an entire country's drinking water is now clean or, you know, Flint, Michigan's water is out of, is not poisoned with lead, you know? So it's, there are things like that where it's like, I would love to see that. It's like, look, I do not mind a company getting obscenely wealthy. Um, I would love to see some of that money come back, not to just shareholders and to CEOs and chairmen, but to, like giving back to the, the people that are creating that wealth for them um, and have it be where it levels up. Because I think if we level, if we level that playing field um, across the world, across the country, across, you know, pick, pick whatever segmentation you want, that's where we're going to start to be able to see the change. Because right now it's this minority of people that have access to these technologies, have access to these systems, have access to computers and iPads and phones uh, and tablets and all these devices. And it's the people that don't have access to it that are, are getting kind of squeezed out because again, like their voices, they don't have access to be able to share their voice the same way. They aren't able to get informed the same way. They're uh, the, it's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too, uh, you know, again, and it is like having to work four jobs, three jobs to make ends meet. It's, it's, it's a, it's a no win scenario and there's gotta be something different. I mean, it doesn't, I could go on forever about this stuff but again like that to me is the is the key to breaking to breaking the corporate cycle is finding a way for these corporations yes if you want to get rich if you want to do this great that inform that that money that profit some aspect has to come back to raising all boats if that makes sense no absolutely i mean my minor was um political science so i i love this stuff i was deeply entrenched with what you're saying and what's what, what's crazy is most people agree with us like like our like the kind of the you could call it centrist but it's really not that because real like real centrism is like neoliberals and neoconservatives but like like a radical centrist view where it's like yes we should have a market but we should also have people pay their fair share like you shouldn't have it, it's unethical i'll say to have billions and billions of dollars of a company and you're not in a, in a country that you're not paying taxes for and you're still going to be just as wealthy as if you contribute and like there's a way to even things out but we're not doing it and you know i know you don't like to be pessimistic and i'm a positive guy as well 
But I think, I think too, truly, we have to look at the state of our country and the world right now. It is pretty much a dystopia. Uh, I mean, it is. It is. For a lot of people, 100%, it is a, it is a dystopia. But what's good about, and uh, this, this is a good segue, in a lot of fiction, which often replic replicates life, the dystopia can turn around and become better. It, you know, and there's always that glimmer of hope and there's always a, a way to change it, even if it's just a, a, um, a spark, right? Books like The Giver are great at that. Um, mm. You wrote a book yourself, which I would like to uh, talk about right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, again, at the end of the day, I, I enjoy, uh, I pretty much enjoy just, I have a very creative mind when I, I grew up in a small town here in Texas. And, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, I would did, you know, I was really big into computers, love mathematics, also did computer science, also did theater. I did art. Um, I, you know, volunteered with the band. I was pretty much like a just give me everything. And for me, the thing that I've, I've held true to the most is my creativity is I always look for ways to look at things, uh, combining things together and finding creative ways to, I always call it Taco Belling things. It's like, you know, it's like, I have the same three things that you do, but I come up with 20 different ways, whereas you only have four, you know? Um, so again, like that's my, that's my calling card. And uh, when it came time for this book, like I said, this was one of those things where it's like, I always said that you know, by the time I turned 40, I wanted to be a published author, a published author, or write a book at least. Uh, about five years ago, I actually did a children's book. Um, you know, published it on Amazon. Did had a friend of mine illustrate it, and again, it was just meant to be a, a cathartic thing of like it's a small endeavor, 26 pages, basic you know Christmas story type thing. And I was like, this is, and it was actually geared off of an IoT project that I was building, and uh, and I had a really Polarport. good time. Yeah, Polarport. So. Mm -hmm. I still, I've got the model, like actually it's, where is it? And here's the oh, bottom. Yeah. Here's the bottom, here it is right here. <laughs> so here's the bottom part of it. But yeah, it's basically, I've got this whole, I don't know, I've got this drawer full of raspberry pies and everything down here. So it's, I haven't used it, but I got a 3D printer, but it looks like a Pokemon ball is what the model was. But um, I've got some NeoPixel, uh, NeoPixel array and some uh, Bluefruit, uh, uh, some Blue, Blue, Bluefruit BLE uh, devices that, I could put in here and I've got it to where, uh, where I was actually able to use my phone to, uh, basically what it was was you would tell your kid, hey, this little Christmas ornament has an LED matrix on it. And it would tell the kid, you tell the kid, hey, this is a real time naughty nice meter. And the idea is that, you know, you, you put it on your mantle or whatever, and the kids see it. And then, you know, kid does something not so great, use your phone, you jack the number down a little bit, you, something goes good, you put it up and it's just this constant reminder. Um, and then in the story that went with it, was meant to be fun so i did it i got the the technology pieces kind of ironed out at a high level and i was like you know what the story really th needs to be there to create the market before i create the device so i wrote the book and i had a really really good time writing it it was just one of those things where i started writing the words started coming out the fingers kept flying um and so when i got done i was like well that's a children's book it's small you know and then i was like i saw i was like you know what uh you know to be honest the story was uh, Ready Player One, I read the story uh, and I thought it was a great book. And I was so excited that I bought Armada, the next book afterwards. And I read it and I was not so happy. I was very like, you know, I felt like it was, it was a bit, it was just not quite up to my expectations and whatever. But I realized that, you know, if a person can write Armada and sell 10 million copies, I could do something in that guy, you know, something in that line. And again, Armada is a decent book, but again, it wasn't Ready Player One material. I've already pre-ordered Ready Player Two, so... Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so when I, I decided I was going to write this book, um, and I, I based it off of 
my life growing up, um, you know, when I started uh, in high school, I had very unique opportunities. I lived in a small town. I quickly became known as one of the few kids who actually knew what they were doing with computers. I was a, a software manager for the local place where you bought software, um, was friends with uh, the sysops uh, for a BBS that was in our town. And me and a, a friend of mine, we were basically like the go-to people for you know getting people set up. And then eventually this BBS turned into a, an, a full-fledged ISP. And it was just that transition of like going from being in a small town, like loading your first website, figuring out how to do internet, what the, you know, how to use a modem beyond just a standard BBS connection and, um, and just being in that environment and being thrust into that. Um, you know, I kind of pride myself and joke. I never really worked at a restaurant or any kind of typical thing. I pretty much was, uh, I did, uh, when I was 15, I did banquet. I was a banquet manager for a hotel, but after that, I went straight on and was full technical the whole time. I was always in some sort of technical resource for some something and some ISP um, and just got, was given a whole lot of responsibility and a whole lot of books, go read it and become the person and, and you do it, you know? So, uh, so a lot of the stories that I wrote or this story is basically based on a lot of the life experiences. I like to tell people that no one character in my book is based on any one person. It's a, like I took the best of the people and the stories that I have and I, I laid them out in a story arc that kind of matches uh, kind of my feelings for that era. And again, it's this, it's almost a reminder because again, it's so commonplace. People are like, oh, I'm going to get on the internet. I just pull out my phone or I just pull out, you know, get on my computer, but there's no squelching of the modem. There's no worried about internet speeds or like when you can't download, a, when uh, you can't watch a video without it, you know, buffering or whatever, that's your, that's your, that's your litmus test for poor internet, where back in the day it was like, oh, if you can't even see an image, like you could see it loading, like you could count the pixels as they loaded. I mean, that was the, the norm back then. And so it was this, uh, and the craziness of how the world was back then, how open things were, again, like I talked about security wise, there really wasn't right. that secure. Uh, and if people just were blindly just doing what they did. So, um, yeah, so I, did the book. It took me about two and a half years to kind of put together. Um, it was an exercise in patience. So, uh, but at the end of the day, it was, it was fun. Yeah. And if, um, you know, the, 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 the two books fork this life volume one, it's out right now on uh, Amazon Kindle and paperback. So everyone, the links will be down in the, in the video description and please download it. You can also get polar port, which is uh, IOT for the Christmas spirit. And um, Ryan, I really want to give you as much time as you want to. I think it's the perfect time to do the plug, all that stuff. Where can people find you, your works, your, your authorings, all of that stuff. Uh, easiest way to get me is ryanrutan.com. All of it is cross-linked there. So you'll be able to see all the stuff that I've done. Uh, if you're on Amazon or Goodreads, you can also hit me up there. Uh, if you happen to be a Spotify user, I put together, the book has a very interesting part. It has a playlist associated with it. So every chapter has a song and uh, that I basically put together a mixtape for the book. So if you play the playlist in the background, you'll be able to kind of walk through the emotions of the book. So if you want to know, if you want to get a one hour summary of what the book feels like, listen to the playlist and you'll get a feel of like where my brain was at in terms of the, char the character arcs, the, the story uh, th uh, plot and whatnot. So, but uh, all that can be done on either forkthislife.com or ryanrutan.com and go for there. So, but yeah, Perfect, follow me. Yeah. Yeah, follow on Twitter. What are you on Twitter? Uh, Fork this life. Fork this life on all of them. Facebook, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Yeah, I think those are my two main ones. 
So. Awesome. You got you got the the fork this life. You're the one who got that uh, at username. So that's pretty sick. I feel like that would have been taken, but congrats on that. Yeah. Everyone, please go read the book. Follow Ryan. You've been such an educational guest. I'm so happy you came on. People need to hear this. Um, I ask all my guests at the end of every episode. We want to get more people reading as well. Uh, can you please suggest a book or a quote that you really love? Oh, man. That's really yeah. hard. So, <laughs> Uh, for me, I mean, so for me, my biggest, uh, my books that I like to read uh, are pretty odd. Um, but again, my, my favorite one is, uh, oh gosh, I don't even, I, I've used it so long in my life that I actually have to, to send it to do it. And so it's from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So when I was a kid growing up, Sherlock Holmes was my thing. Like I'll pretty much watch anything related to that storyline. Um, but I found that when I read the books with Sherlock Holmes. I felt like I was always trying to piece apart the mystery before it actually, before the reveal. Um, when I look at the way I approach technology, the way I approach life, it's always about trying to poke holes, trying to predict what's going on. Uh, but for me, the thing that always keeps me humble is this one quote that I, I put it on the bottom of all my emails. Uh, Mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself, but talent instantly recognizes genius. Damn. Um, and so for me, this is like, this has been my quote for over 20 years. Um, that I, again, it's more of a, a way to realize that, you know, you should always be seeking to find someone to inspire from. Another fun one is, you know, if you're not, the, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, uh, yes. is, you know, it's, you should always be looking to, yeah, there you go. Well, I don't know who it is, but if that's him, then you might've stolen it. <laughs> possibly. I don't want to do attribution on it. It's definitely not mine. Yeah. Uh, but for me, like, that's the piece that I know is that I, I find that the life's a bunch of happy accidents that have in, encountered it given me introductions to people that have been extremely talented. And I find that, you know, when uh, you find your talent and you can find that network of people like that as a virtuous cycle of, of introducing to more stuff. Um, if you find that you're, you're not uh, finding those type of connections. And again, that's my challenge to everybody is to look ahead and see like, what is it in your life that gives you passion? What is it that, you know, one of the things about kind of take a tangent, but one of the things about fork this life that's interesting is, uh, it's a play on words. So when software uh, software development, a fork is a take the code you have and do something different with it. Um, one of the themes that I did in life, uh, I'm gonna take a dovetail because it actually does tie into this. When I was in, when I was growing up, I always thought that I was gonna be the world's best computer science person. Um, I used to literally say, I'm gonna write the next best algorithm to save the world. Like as a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna do this. Um, and so when I went to college, that was my mindset. And I got bored really quick. And I dropped out and I was, a, and I went and became a consultant, did that thing, left that, went back to college, got a business degree. And then again, I've, and I was in uh, IT for a while now, pivoted to marketing. And the thing that I always talk about is that when you figured out that life is not doing what you wanted to do, you need to fork it. You need to get, basically say, look, you know what? Take everything that I've done, find out what your passion is, because it changes every year, every time, every moment. Um, take what you have, what's unique, and then find another trajectory and do it. And um, this writing of the book is a forking for me. It's me trying my, trying my spurs at, at writing, uh, writing books. Um, but in, again, in the book, in the character itself, in some of the characters, it's about people finding these unexpected paths and like thinking success is one way, but then real, realizing that success is, is even far greater and bigger than you could have ever imagined just by going a different route. So um, when it comes to, this concept of, you know, finding genius, finding talent, you know, always be looking for someone to learn from and, and get information from and grow from because 
that is what makes life beautiful in my opinion, not to get too sappy, but that's what creates growth. And you'll never know when you grow in a certain area, it'll open up doors and avenues. So, um, so yeah, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, read all that right now. Um, I've actually found an author who uh, I think his name is James Lovegood or something. I haven't read his book yet, but he writes Firefly. He's picked up the Firefly series and he's also picked up Sherlock Holmes. And I'm like, I'm hoping that is really good because I've been dying for some new stories from both of those. So beautiful. And uh, before we say goodbye, I do. I want to suggest you a book as well because I okay. have it on my shelf. It's called How to Think Like Sherlock by Daniel Smith. Ooh, um, oh, nice. I'll take that. Yeah, I think you'll I think you'll like it. It's kind of like a kid's book, but it's still really good and teaches you a lot. Kind of like a who moved my cheese type of deal. Well, nice. yeah, it's how to think like Sherlock by Daniel Smith. But don't buy that. Buy Ryan's book. It's on Amazon <laughs> and Kindle. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Adios, everyone. Thanks. Bye.